0: Welcome, everyone, to the Wild West podcast, where we talk to the people shaping how we think about nature, the outdoors, and California's wild places. I'm San Francisco Chronicle travel editor Greg Thomas, and this pod is a place where I interview adventure athletes and environmental advocates and the movers and shakers who are defining and redefining what we do when we go outdoors. Today, I'm excited to talk to journalist and author Porter Fox. Porter is a former editor at Powder Magazine, and in 2013, he published a book called Deep. Deep. The Story of Skiing and the Future of Snow. The book paints an eye-opening picture of what climate change is doing to snowfall across the Northern Hemisphere, which is where most of the top skiing destinations in the world are. So anyone who has thought about skiing Lake Tahoe in the last decade will tell you winter weather in the Sierras has become more erratic recently. Some years are super dry, and some years, like this past winter, have seen record snowfall. And so it's tough to know what to make of it. Are these big weather swings the direct result of climate change? Are they happening elsewhere? And what will the future look like?
1: I don't think it's going to slip away into the night. I, I think when people start to see some of the truly devastating winters, I mean, that's going to become more common. Yeah, you know, No matter what for the next few decades, that's going to become more common, and there, I feel it'll hit a critical point where people like Jeremy and, and millions of others are like, enough, what do we got to do?
0: I wanted to see if we could get to the bottom of what's happening to winter in ways that we can really see and understand, so I reached out to Porter, and we worked on an in-depth article that lays out what skiers and ski resorts are doing to plan for and hedge against this reality of warmer winters we're going to see going forward. We focused on skiing because, to some degree, ski areas are the canaries in the coal mine. They're going to show us what the future of a warmer earth really looks like and how we might have to adapt. Porter knows a ton about this issue, and his article will really change the way you think about what's in store for our winters in the decades to come. You can find the article on sfchronicle.com. It's called The Future of Skiing in California. Quick note on the podcast before we get into it, Porter and I recorded our phone conversation independently of each other, so you'll notice the audio quality shifts depending on who's speaking. We'll get into my conversation with Porter Fox in a moment, but first this brief message. All right, we're back. Now on to my conversation with author and journalist Porter Fox. Well, hey, Porter, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Great to have you. Thanks for having me, Greg. So we are here to talk today about essentially the future of skiing, but also the future of winter. That's what's really, I think, at stake here and at the core of this article that you wrote for us. And so you you first started writing about the future of winter back in, the first article I saw was in 2013. It looks like you've kept tabs on the development since then. And so I'm wondering how has your outlook on this phenomenon changed since you first started digging into it you know, eight years ago or so.
1: Um, You know, it was pretty surprising that after at that point, 15 years, almost 20 years in ski writing, um, you know, journalism based out of Jackson hole that I hadn't connected the dots as, as many had not between climate change and melting snowpacks around the world. And when I got into um, deep, the first book that I wrote about it and those articles, which were an excerpt from deep, um it was a real revelation and, and honestly pretty terrifying. I I some of the statistics I was coming across, I was fact-checking them like five, six, seven times, because it didn't seem possible that what climatologists were saying is that there's a good chance that there will not be any permanent snowpack in the mid-latitude regions by the end of the century. Um, basically that includes all the lower 48 and Europe, uh, no more glaciers, no more ice in Europe, um, not much snow in the ground at any elevation under 7,000 feet or so. Um, that was pretty shocking to consider looking at brown and green mountains in the middle of winter instead of those big icy Rockies that we're used to looking at. Um, so at any rate, that was uh, that that same revelation. Unfortunately, continues to sort of compound as further studies and further refined climate models paint a much sharper um, and unfortunately a much more grim future for the future of snow and. Of winter, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, has a, a lot of um, a sort of domino effect of natural disasters that follows closely on its heels.
0: You know, one of the things I think is interesting about looking at the ski industry and ski resorts is that they, to me, seem like kind of the canaries in the coal mine for this. They're at these high elevations, they are fully dependent on snow, good snow. And so I wanted to kind of throw that back at you and ask, what do you feel like we can learn from this whole phenomenon of changing winters by looking at ski resorts?
1: Well, there, you know, there are two populations that are seeing massive, widespread, visible change um, coming out of global warming. And uh, one of them is people who are living at sea level. Um, like the people in the Maldives that are watching water uh, kind of come up their shores and and, and uh, put their much of their country underwater. And the, and the other population is people who are living in the snow, whether it's up in the Arctic or up at higher elevations. And skiers are part of that latter population, and they hold a very important... Um, place in, in this whole evolution that we're that we're watching roll out um, you know i mean even jesus said it in the bible people don't believe anything until they see it so he had to show them a miracle well no one believed climate change until they started seeing things like Superstorm sandy and and um, you know the hurricanes that have just demolished the u.s and the extreme weather and whatnot Um, But really the people who are really seeing it are are skiers and people who live in the mountains as you just watch this snow line move uphill and you watch the maximum snow extent in the northern hemisphere just shrink back toward the poles every year. Um, It's just surprising that most of the skiing population and certainly very few in the ski uh, industry have stepped up to that challenge. Um, You know, you're talking about an affluent, educated um, population of over 14 million people in America alone uh, that are truly passionate about their sport and the environment and whatnot. And yet, their voice in Washington at this point is negligible. Um, and it's, it's, it's unfortunate. And then there's others like, uh, the folks from protect our winters and, and, uh, folks at, um, Aspen and, and, um, you know, a a lot of people actually sort of a few people at resorts across the country are, are being vocal, but there's only a few, um, you know, kind of business-wide leaders, uh, and, uh, it's, it's unfortunate. Of course, we're always hoping to turn that around.
0: Yeah. So, what are some of the things that resorts are actually doing right now to either plan for or hedge against warmer winters? <laughs> Well,
1: there's, there's a lot of things. Operational efficiency has been happening for the last 10, 15 years, and it's, it's terrific. It's sort of recycling programs and burn biodiesel and change light bulbs and, and uh, make buildings more efficient, make snowmaking more efficient. Absolutely you know, terrific initiatives, as long as they are hand-in-hand hand with something that will actually slow climate change. Those initiatives are something that, sure, if every single person in business on earth did it, we could solve climate change. Um, But operational efficiency is sort of a double-edged sword. It uh, saves the resort money. It makes the resort uh, more profitable or or, a little bit more streamlined. Uh, However, it it doesn't really put a dent into climate change the way that, that it needs to. So what you know, a bunch of um, uh, advocacy groups like Protect Our Winners and, and a few others have been pushing for is to use their an uh, in the industry, use their collective business voice to kind of like push for climate change legislation. Um, we're talking about stopping burning fossil fuels across the nation and pushing for renewables, and it requires legislation to do it at that level and to do it at the pace required, it requires legislation, um, policy change, national policy change, following through at the Paris Accords and whatnot. For skiers, individual skiers, you know, they sort of need someone to lead them. I, I, I I think they're waiting for that call and are perfectly willing to put their dollars and their voices and their votes um, in the right spot. But it's it's hard to coalesce around a few skiers. It's much easier to coalesce around a trade group or a, a big corporation like Aspen Ski Co. Um, so that's that's really what we're kind of hoping will happen.
0: From an actual, you know, business standpoint, a lot of these resorts are rolling out all of these uh, off season and warmer weather activities and infrastructure. And to me, that seems kind of like a telling... You know, that's a telling indicator of what these resorts are thinking about in terms of trying to diversify their revenue streams, trying to appeal to more people, trying to get more people to the resorts uh, when it's not winter, when it's summer. Um, can you talk a little bit about what resorts are actually doing in kind of the short term to, like I said, to hedge against this, uh, these warmer winters?
1: Well, they're they're trying to you know, they're trying to make up what they're losing in, in the winter. Um, it's, it's devastating low snow years, just in California alone, you're losing over a million skier visits, a hundred million dollars and an economic uh, value added 1200 fewer jobs in the industry. Um, you know, California has the second biggest um, kind of economic impact in the country in terms of, of skiing and the, and the economy. Um, and it's, you know, 1.4 billion in economic value added. So it's a really big deal when this low snow year comes along and what places like Squaw Valley, um, like heavenly, like everyone all the way down to Big Bear, um, and the San Bernardinos, they're doing, they're pushing for off season activities like, um, at Big Bear, they do above the boom where they take. Hundreds of people up the chairlift on July fourth to look at the Big Bear Lake fireworks show, which was, I think, he's, uh, I think they said it was the second biggest in Southern California. So it's quite a show. Um, you know that makes some cash. They've got right across the way at Snow Summit, they've got a huge bike park, the the only lift service bike park in Southern California, and and that's a real economic you know generator there. And 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 all of this, by the way. First of all, it began in 2012 when the Forest Service allowed four-season use at, um, you know, many of its ski resort properties. Um, but secondly, you know, there's nothing wrong. These are businesses. Their bottom line is their bottom line. Their job is to be profitable, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just... Hand in hand with adaptation initiatives like these, adapting to warmer climates by putting in roller coasters like they're doing at uh, Squaw Valley in in the near future and um, putting in, you know, things that will um, help the business besides snow is totally fine. But you have to do mitigation at the same time. You have to do the advocacy, do the hard-hitting political work. Um, Because, you know, as devastating as a lot of these studies are, right alongside those studies are findings that if we can stay at 1.5C, like the Paris Accords mandate, if we can do that, you're looking at way more ski areas in the lower 48 that remain climate-reliable, that stay open through the end of the century. And, and isn't that the idea? Like, isn't that the, the you know, and even in terms of business and profit and whatnot, I, I believe that's what we're shooting for here. So in the short term, sure, you got you got to buffer that bottom line. But in the long term, you also have to be doing everything in your power to get climate-friendly legislators into office, pass this legislation, cut emissions, and slow climate change as quickly as possible.
0: Right. So in this story, we I asked you to focus on ski resorts in the Sierras in California. And what makes the Sierras a unique or a pertinent case study in terms of understanding the effects of climate change?
1: I mean, the Sierras are interesting in the same way that the Cascades are, and, and some of the um, some of the resorts back east as well. That they're close to the water. Um, and they're naturally going to feel the effects of, of um, the warmth that that water brings to the, to the mountains. And um, the way that storms hit them, the types of storms that hit them, coastal ranges are simply melting out faster uh, than other places. Um, it's also interesting and uh, kind of tragic in the world of climate science that Higher elevations are warming faster than lower elevations, winter is warming faster than summer, and nights are warming faster than daytime, which spells the perfect storm for snowmaking. It's not good for snowmaking, um, which is kind of the big adaptation policy that most resorts are counting on. so at any rate, um, but the Sierras, you know, the, back to snowmaking, these Sierras are also interesting in that, you know, there's year-round farming in California and back east and in most parts of the west, Wyoming, and Utah, and Montana, the, the ski areas are not fighting uh, farmers and ranchers for water rights in the middle of the winter. You know, that, that's all frozen and that's, that's kind of not happening in the wintertime. Um, but in California, that's not the case, and that and that battle goes on, you know, all year round. And as water scarcity issues um, get worse, you know, that challenge to find um, water for snowmaking—that's a tremendous amount of water—is going to get very tricky.
0: Yeah, you say you have a stat in here that more than ninety percent of ski resorts in the U.S. now rely on man-made snow to open, uh, basically, to open before Christmas and stay open into the spring which, uh, I mean, I, I knew ski resorts made snow, but that's pretty wild. I didn't realize how many resorts were reliant and to what extent.
1: Yeah, I mean, and 70 years ago, there wasn't a single ski resort in America that had snowmaking. And there were twice as many ski resorts as there are now. They were all existing on natural snow, and now they're not. So the truth is, is that the ski industry has been adapting to climate change since the 1940s. You know, or excuse me, since the 1950s when the first snowmaking um, you know, facilities went up. So that, it's, it's pretty wild. And in very unknowingly, it was like, oh, geez, a couple more bad winters this year and a couple more. And the next thing you know, they're making snow every single day.
0: I wanted to ask, the way that we characterize the recent swings in weather that we've seen in winter the past several years is erratic. We say winter weather is more erratic because it's not necessarily getting warmer year over year. You know, there's not less snow every single year than there was the year before that. And this past season is a perfect example of that, where it just went crazy in February and March. But the long-term projections, when you look at them like 50, 60 years out, show warmer temperatures, less snow cover, less snowpack. So can you just talk a bit about that? I mean, I think that's difficult for people to reconcile. You know, when you talk about global warming and how ski resorts are doing things to kind of hedge against you know these warmer winters and then we look and we see that squaw for instance has decided to stay open into July this year because of how much snow they got
1: yeah it's it's very tricky and it's it's very hard to talk about climate change you know in in the mountains after a huge winter like this one. But climate change works in, doesn't even work in decades. It's really every 25 years, every 50 years, every 100 years, where predictions are getting more and more accurate. Um, So it happens in step changes. And and what you're looking at is, what is the progression over the last 30 years? What is the progression over the last 300 years? And that progression is very clear. Uh, Since 19... uh, 70, um, you've seen uh, a million square miles of spring snowpack disappear from the northern hemisphere, a million square miles. I mean, that is looking down at Earth with a satellite image, the, the maximum snow extended winter um, in the 1970s versus now, uh, there's a big chunk missing and it's receding back towards the poles. Um, When you look at climate change, you know, you just look at uh, the warmth that, you know, California, you know, that's warmed nearly two degrees since 1950. I mean, that rate is insane. But again, if you look at last year and the year before and the year before that, you're not going to see that much. Um, so you kind of have to look at these big historical leaps and the climate models that jump out 50, 100, 200 years into the future to, to really see the, see the trends. And then what you get in between is climate variability. and this is the one of the favorite terms of you know, folks like Vale resorts who will not say climate change. they'll only say climate variability. And that is accurate to a certain extent. Um, Part of climate change, when you add heat to the atmosphere, you're adding energy to the system. If you add energy to your car, it's going to go faster. If you add energy to the weather systems of the world, they're going to be more severe. And that results in the very accurate forecast of there will be more extreme snowstorms in the future. But there will be fewer overall snowstorms in the future, um, and and if you want to get you know specifics about the Sierra, uh, the Sierra Nevada, I mean they're looking at in the state a projected 10.8 degrees Fahrenheit of warming under higher emissions scenario, um, that could shorten the Sierra Nevada snow season to, uh, by over two months and eliminate it altogether at lower elevations. Um, you know, that's, that's looking, you know, for, where are we now almost 2020 and you know, that's like an 80 year, 80 year kind of, uh, uh, prediction there. Um, so it is tricky to, to talk about year over year. Um, but uh, there's a snow scientist in Switzerland that I interviewed that actually did a study on this. And he said, um, the human brain is capable of, uh, accurately recalling precipitation and snow. Maximum of five years into the past. So beyond five years, everyone's like, "Oh, I think in the eighties it was sort of this much and that much," but it's very inaccurate um, what they're saying. And and that's when you got to go to the to the pros and and see what their study plots have measured.
0: You reminded me of something I wanted to bring up with you, which is some of these resorts and as well as the National Ski Areas Association are essentially. You know, they're in the camp of people who are denying climate change, essentially, which is odd. I mean, when you see not just the models, which these people are well aware of, but also the initiatives that they're undertaking. What do you what, what is the benefit, you think, of denying a changing climate if you're in the position of, you know, a resort or a resort representative?
1: I just think it's it's business. It's short term profits. It's trying to stay profitable. It's trying to put a, a rose tinted picture on it, keep people excited about the mountains. You know, again, their job is to get people to the mountains, buy their tickets, enjoy, um, protect the environment, um, maybe as an afterthought. But you know, the number one priority is th- these are businesses, and they. Need to be profitable, and this is really, really bad for business. Um, This is a a really terrible thing that has happened to them. And honestly, as much as people will point to, you know, chairlifts and snowmaking and skiers flying to places to go skiing and whatnot, you know, that's not why we have climate change. It's not helping it, but that's not why. And it's not their fault. What is their fault is trying to sweep it under the rug and trying to pretend like nothing's really happening like there's just climate variability there's not climate change um you know in a, in a recent interview the president of NSAA said well we don't know what the future's going to hold we don't know because we are not scientists and you got to say well there are thousands of scientists out there thankfully and all you got to do is listen to them because they do know what's going to happen. Maybe not precisely within one hundredth of a degree, but they're pretty sure. And, and their accuracy has been proven again and again and again. You know, that, that debate is over. We know what's happening. It's getting warmer. Snow melts when it's warm. The only question
0: is when and where and how much um, each decade. So Porter, you live in New York City these days, right? Yes. It's, yeah, it's uh, not exactly a mountain town. So how do you get out and go skiing? Ski town in the
1: east. <laughs> right. Uh, I go. I go to the Catskills a fair amount, and um, I still do assignments every now and then. So I, I actually just went up to um, the Gas Bay Peninsula up in uh, Quebec, and skied the Chick Chalk Mountains. Uh, which are absolutely phenomenal. Uh, it's no 24 inches the day before we arrived and we skied powder all day long. And that was my first run of the season after getting knee surgery in October. So it was especially sweet for me.
0: Has learning all that you've learned changed your idea about how you ski? It has, um, I
1: I've sort of naturally, uh, Gravitated toward backcountry skiing many years ago. Um, I don't like the crowds at resorts. Um, every now and then it's fun and for work I used to um, sort of have to do it. But I, I really, when we were up in Quebec, we're just hiking and skiing and up in the Catskills pretty often I'm just hiking and skiing. Um, that, that came kind of naturally. Um, if things keep going the way they're going, you know, Resorts will be closing before all the snow is gone, i.e., the lifts are going to stop spinning, but the mountains and the snow is still going to be there for a while. And, you know, that is a possible trend um, um, for us here in the States. It's just more and more kind of earning your turns. Um, but it, honestly, the biggest thing for me in the last five years, anyway, is really just trying to activate these skiers who really do care, they really do want to do something and they they just need a leader like Protect Our Winters, again, like Aspen, like Arapahoe Basin, like Squaw Valley. Squaw Valley's done uh, tremendous things in terms of um, getting Liberty Utilities to um, push for renewables and and ending coal-fired power from coming into the Olympic Valley there. Um, you know that that's the leadership that they're really looking for and and I just I really hope I really hope it happens uh, for the climate I really hope it happens also because I've spent so much time in that world and it's 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 kind of embarrassing to look at what we're not doing Um, especially when we have so much um, capacity to to really stand up and, and have a unified very powerful voice in Washington
0: Yeah, there's a, in terms of adjusting our thinking and our, you know, our conception of winter, there's a quote in your story that I wanted to read because I just thought it was so telling about how our attitudes towards winter are evolving or are going to have to evolve. And, you know, it's, it's coming from the place of, you know, it used to feel like you could count on great snow in a place like Lake Tahoe, but you talk to a longtime skier in Tahoe named Jeremy Benson who says... I've stopped trusting weather forecasts and predictions, and I don't hang as much emotional energy on how much snow we're going to get until I see how it plays out. Now you just have to really appreciate when it's good because it's not a sure thing. And that just seems to change the whole equation, I think, for people who are thinking about skiing as a winter activity, as this, this great pastime, this mountain pastime
1: yeah i don't think it's gonna slip away into the night i i think when people start to see some of the truly devastating winters i mean you know you can look back in the sierras um back over the last seven years or so and You had four extreme winter droughts um you know just that little ribbon of snow down, down squaw valley the the um you know some resorts just not even opening um you know, that's going to become more common. Yeah, you know, no matter what, for the next few decades, that's going to become more common. And there, I feel it'll hit a critical point where people like Jeremy and, and millions of others are like, "Enough! What do we got to do?" Like uh, the skiers that I know, the skiers that I ski bummed with out in Jackson Hole after college, and and all over the west they're not just going to sit down and be like, Oh yeah, I'll ride my mountain bike now. You know, skiing's done. I I don't see that, Like it is, it's, it's like climbing, uh, like skiing. There's a few of these kind of lifetime sports that people get. So surfing is another, they get so attached to, it becomes a part of their uh, identity. And when I worked at powder, we used to say, you know, our readers are people that when they're at a cocktail party, they introduce themselves as a skier. That's what I do. I'm a skier. And that doesn't just go away. So we haven't hit that critical point yet. There are still some great winters. Um, but when a real drought hits, you know, and we really see some heavy, heavy winter rain, you know, just things that, you know, winter thunderstorms, you just think that you're like, what is going on? Um, you know, m- maybe that's enough to wake people up. But I, I, I fear that might be too late. And, and we need to step on the gas a little bit, a little bit
0: earlier. So it sounds like you're kind of, you know, your prescription for what needs to happen is political advocacy and activity. Is that is that about right?
1: Uh, Absolutely. And that really just comes again. This is all coming from the scientists and from the scientists. The change needs to happen in literally like the next 10 years. Um, You know, the last IPCC report that came out said if we don't reduce emissions dramatically in 11 years, then we are looking at really devastating effects of climate change by 2040. You know, it's it's you know, pardon the pun, but it's a, a climate change is a snowballing kind of thing. The less we do now, it's not like a one to one ratio of what we'll have to deal with later. It's like a one to fifty ratio of what we'll have to deal with later. Um, certain things like uh, the permafrost in North America, up in the Canadian Arctic, when that thaws, it releases methane, which is twenty three times more potent a insulating gas as compared to co2 and there is millions of tons of it up in the permafrost and there is no stopping it once that thaws and that will warm this planet many times more than humans ever did and there's nothing you can do so tipping points like that are what keep me up at night and keep me kind of working on this um i feel like i don't like scaring people because it tends to make people do nothing. Um, and I also, and I also like to wear the hat of the reporter and not the advocate. I like to report on the advocates. Um, but again, coming from science, they're saying, here's your timeline. What are you going to do?
0: Well, that seems like a good place to stop and gives people a lot to think about, I think. So thanks very much for coming on the podcast, Porter. It was great to have you.
1: Yeah. Thanks a lot, Greg. It was good. Good to talk to you.
0: Thanks again to Porter for making time to come on the podcast. If you want to keep track of his work, follow him on Twitter at Porter Fox. If you want to follow what I'm up to with California travel, I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas. Or if you've got questions for me or suggestions for who I should bring on the pod, email me at gthomas at sfchronicle.com. Wild West is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you like us, please throw us a rating and a review. Our music today is a track called Fuzzy and True by the Mini Vandals, and it comes courtesy of the YouTube Audio Library. See you next time.